0: If you'd like you can open up your Bibles, we are going to read together. I'm going to read out loud and you can just read in your head if you'd like. Thanks so much. Oh no. Yep. It is. Woo. All right, so our meeting from Mark 5 today. I'm in the NIV version, so follow along if you like. You guys ready? Good. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they had said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they all laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went where the child was. He took her by the hand and said, Telethakum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Why don't we welcome Matthew up?
1: (laughs) What's up? Okay, so can you guys hear me? Am I good? All right. (laughs) Okay, I'm so thankful for this opportunity. I remember, um, I actually remember probably sitting in the seats you were when I was in freshman year, and I I was genuinely, like, so terrified. Like, freshman me was a very, like, anxious person, you could say. Um, and I remember kind of sitting in the seats you are, and I was really terrified about uh, if I would come up here, if I would fail, if I would mess up, what people would think, right? Kind of the classic things. Like you're in front of people, and you've got like 100 people, To uh, I don't know how many people are here. How many, Gavin? 150. Sure, 150, 60. Looking at you, and if you fail, what will everyone think? Um, and I, as I've developed, and as I've even been reading this passage, I've loved seeing kind of the transition in my heart and the transition even of this passage and how I look at Scripture that it's not as much about me as it is about Jesus. And it's so incredible to recognize because even in Mark 4, Mark 4, 41, the disciples ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then Mark 5 is a really interesting passage because it sets out to show who Jesus is. It sets out to demonstrate his character and his identity. And... I love it because it shows so much of, I think, what the second last song does, where it's, like, I called you out of the grave. I called you out to give you life. And the image that Jesus demonstrates is that he's a life giver, that he's someone who's giving away life like it's going out of style. Um, in fact, he he does it with the demon-possessed man, where he takes his life back from the enemy. He does it with the woman who is bleeding, who's Like, she literally is so ill, and she can't fix herself, and she's actually, by trying to fix herself, gotten worse. And what Jesus does is he gives her life back. And then what we see in Jairus's daughter is ultimately a resurrection. So if you didn't get the previous uh, two hints that Jesus is in the business of giving life back, he does it in that one really, really clearly. And yeah, it's just such a cool passage, so I'm so thankful that I get get to talk about it. But when I was reading this passage, God kind of placed the image of a garden on my heart. And I was really quite confused because I don't see how a garden relates to this passage. But it was really God gave it to me with this idea of life, kind of garden and life. And I was interested to see how it worked together. And ultimately, like me, not a gardener, I thought back and like, what are my gardening experiences? Okay, I helped my mom pull weeds. Great. Um, I helped my ba- dad build like, the garden bins, because we had like just kind of raised things that we would put the soil in and like have the plants so they're protected from weeds. And then we had like a greenhouse, which let the sun come in and incubate it. And I recognized that gardening is really simple. It has three key components, right? It's got water, soil, and sun. So it's really straightforward, and it's just creating an environment for good things to grow. And, I, and when I thought about creating an environment for things to grow, I thought about Uh, some of the rooms where I've walked into, and you can smell that something's growing in their dirty laundry. Um, And that made me kind of think, like, okay, it's something that's good that's growing. It's not just uh, whatever's in your laundry. And right now, kind of my current state of gardening is this cactus. This is the epitome of my gardening experience, all built up into one beautiful plant. So I I love this plant. I think it's great. It's beautiful. I love that it's actually growing. My favorite part is that it hasn't died yet, so I've got pretty low standards, but I really appreciate it, um, except for one thing. There's one thing about this cactus that is really challenging for me, and it's the fact, I don't know if you can see it, but it's a little bit lopsided. It's growing way off to one side, and for me, I'm kind of like a type A personality, so I like things my way, uh, and that's not really my way. My way, be would okay, normal, it looks good, but it's like leaning off to the side, and I don't know if you've ever been so annoyed at an inanimate object you wanted to change it or like move it. Um, and I, in my great plan and strategy, decided you know what the best way to move a cactus is to kind of get it to go up straight. I decided that using my bare hands was a great idea. Um, and I decided that three times, and <laughs> three times I found out that it doesn't it doesn't really work very well. Um, but kind of the point of all that is. I discovered that forcing, the, in this case, a cactus to do what I want on my way doesn't really work. And what I found and what I was thinking of when I was thinking about this idea of a garden was that gardens are fostered, not forced. They're fostered, not forced. Because ultimately what you do with a garden is you give it this space for it to have life, right? You give it this place where it can grow, where it can really bloom into what it was built to be, what it was meant to be. To be And in Mark 5, we see that Jesus really does this. He creates an environment where he gives life. He is someone who fosters other people's hearts. He fosters other people like a gardener. He says, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to actually do something. I'm going to step into your story where you're brokenness and you're hurting, and there's so much pain and loneliness. That's the huge image we get from every one of these stories. There's incredible pain and desperation. But what Jesus does is he steps in and he gives life. And ultimately, he fosters people's hearts. Um, and I love the image of the garden because it's such a picture of grace, right? Like, none of these people really deserve life. None of these people deserve grace. They, like, you look at the demon-possessed man, and he's, he's really a mess, right? Um, he's not exactly the kind of person you want to hang out with. He's maybe someone we'd call uh, toxic. He's cutting himself, he's got a stone, he's broken chains. And he probably didn't do it really nicely. Okay, just to leave. He probably put up a bit of a struggle, right? He's not someone who's nice, who's easy to get along with. But what we see is that Jesus goes in and he gives grace. He doesn't try to get this man to conjure up his own freedom. He doesn't try to encourage him, hey, you can do it on your own. But he actually goes into their story. Even this man, the demon really doesn't want to give up this man's life, right? He doesn't want to ha- let him have his life back. But what Jesus does is he steps in and he steps into his story in such a beautiful way where he actually takes it back. He says, no, this is what's good for you. I'm going to let you and free you to walk in a way that's beautiful and that's fulfilling and that's satisfying. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, this is one of, it's become one of my favorite passages and it's just, actually it's 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through uh Six through seven, and it says this: I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then it goes on to say, so neither he nor, neither he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And what I love about that passage is that it's not talking about a church growth strategy. It's not really talking about growing a service or growing a ministry or growing some organization. What they were talking about when they talked about the church is their friends in Corinth. These were the people Paul had walked with, that he'd, he knew their families. He deeply knew their stories. He knew their hurts. He knew their pains. He had probably walked many of them to actually knowing Jesus. And the thing he says, it's not me pouring into them. It's not even Apollos, this great teacher. But what the greatest thing, what the thing they really need is God to give the growth. And that for me has been... Such a huge recognize—like something for me where I recognized in so much of my life, I tend to force growth, right? Where we tend to try and do it on our own strength. Where in my life, I have this really—like I love to do well in kind of everything I do. But often that's where I go and try to force growth. I want to be like this. I want to be as kind and caring and relationally good as Gavin. I want to be as good a leader as Spencer, and I try to force it and try to really just create in myself the things I think I need. But ultimately, that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to rely on him to give us growth. And that's a lot harder than it sounds because it requires a lot of trust. And trust, it takes a lot of work and time and effort and patience. Because when you trust someone, you have to lean in. You have to say, okay, I'm going to step in and I'm going to really, like, give my life to you. Like, with Jesus, ultimately, it's that picture where these people, they trust him so much to saying, okay, like, Jairus, he, he's a synagogue leader. He's not exactly someone you look at and say, okay, man, he needs to trust Jesus, right? He's, he's religious. He's got it all together. He's a leader, but what he really needs is to trust God, because there's no other option for his daughter, and it's really a beautiful picture, and all of these people, we see that. We see kind of this evidence of them trusting Jesus in their out-of-control lives. And I think sometimes, for me, I I disconnect myself from the story. I think I kind of am a bit of a narcissist. I tend to imagine myself as Jesus in every story there is. It's like, man, I'm going to be the one going to these people. I'm going to be the one freeing this person. I'm going to be the one giving this person resurrection life. I'm going to be this person who sets people free from the enemy, but. In reality, the, the main focus of the story is Jesus. It's not us. Our, our image, the person we're to be like, is the, the people who just humbly come before Jesus with a little bit of desperation, saying, Jesus, I need you. You're the one who I desperately, desperately need. We see this in the demon-possessed guy. Chains can't control him, right? Like nothing, nothing's worked. Like everyone's tried to help this guy, but they just can't. And what I love is that Jesus steps into really this barren place because the image that this place is, it's like cliffs, it's barren, it's really lonely. There's pigs, that means it's unclean. And this guy's hurting himself, he's cutting himself, there's blood, it's a mess. It's really not a healthy place anybody wants to be. But what Jesus does is he comes in and he says, okay, I'm going to reach out to this person. Because it's not this man who sought Jesus out, but it's Jesus who sought him out. See, this man, and I've kind of recognized this, but demon-possessed people don't exactly have a good track record of earning grace, right? You don't see in their lives, like, okay, I'm possessed. I'm the best demon-possessed person out there. You should save me, Jesus, right? You don't see that ever. Like, possessed people are the opposite of what God wants, but what we see in our lives is that we're kind of similar to that, right? Like we, no matter how much we try, no matter how much effort we put in, we're never going to earn grace because the beautiful thing about grace is that it's given, that you don't earn it because if you did, it would just be another badge, another star, but what it really is is something that shows the character of Jesus in a beautiful and precious way because he's the only one who can give it. And he's the one we can chase after, we can seek after to receive it. And I love this man's transformation, too. Like, I love how in verse, I think it's, yeah, verse 19 through 20, it's Jesus actually tells this guy to go home. He says, this guy's like, man, I want to follow you. You freed me from a demon. He's like, go home. But he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the really cool part is, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. How Freeze Translation, the NIV, puts it is, everyone's amazed. Like, all the people were amazed. And I personally really want that in my life. I don't know about you, but, like, I want to be someone who, when people see me, they don't look at me. They're like, wow, Matt, you're so amazing, and you're so good, and you're so funny, and you're so clever, and you're so good at this, and you're so good at that. Because ultimately, when I fail, that validation's meaningless, right? Because all of a sudden, everything that they've built me up, and they've thought I was, is no longer true. But what we see in this story is that when Jesus changes his life, everyone marvels, not at him, but at Jesus. They actually see something beautiful about the character of God because of what happens in this man's life. And I think we see this in the garden too, right? Who's ever seen a beautiful sunset? Whoever likes to hike, who likes to do kind of all that outdoor nature stuff? Uh, I enjoy it. I have friends who constantly pull me out to do it, and I really have started to build an appreciation of it. But you don't look at nature or a tree and be like, wow, this tree did such a good job. Like, <laughs> this tree is amazing, right? You look at it and you say, wow, like there's a creator. There's Behind this sunset, there's a God who made it, who's put it in place. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what our lives can be because when we let ourselves grow naturally, grow into who God has created us to be, we will like inevitably have everyone marvel, not at us, but at him. And I'm, I'm really lucky uh, to lead with Paul, Paul Engels. I don't know where he is right now. He's somewhere. Hey, there we go, Paul. See, he's even serving right now. I love it. Um, but I love leading with Paul because he's a great encourager. He's someone who really, when he encourages you, he doesn't just say you're amazing. My kind of encouragement is yell down the hallway, you're cool, as someone can barely hear me and then <laughs> duck behind a door, right? Like, I'm not great at it, admittedly, so I love leading with Paul. He is, he is a very special human being to me. It's been a blessing, but the way he encourages people is he actively seeks out and marvels at what Jesus has done. And for me, that's a hugely encouraging thing because he's recognizing that not that I'm great, but that Jesus is great and he's actually doing something in me. He's operating in my heart, that Jesus is doing something that is so much bigger and better than I could ever do by my own strength. And I think we can really take a lesson even from Paul because that's the kind of people we get to be. We get to marvel at what Jesus is doing in every single person. I believe... There's not a single person on the planet who doesn't have something inside of them that we can marvel at what Jesus has done. Even people who aren't believers, right? Because God's created them. God has placed such an individual identity and such a beautiful like, calling on their life. And he wants to create them and make them into something. And I believe if we seek out Jesus in the, in the people who maybe even are far from him, we will find something special. And we can call it out, and we can encourage it, and we say, this is what I see in you. And I know there's a lot of mess, but this is the beauty that I see God creating and fostering in your heart. Um, Doc Coates once mentioned, I think it's in doctrine, the, the battered image of God. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that term, but it's the idea that with sin, we're corrupted, right? Like, at the garden, we got the battered image of God. We represent him but really broken. And I think it's a beautiful idea when we encourage, when we seek out others, to actually look at them and try to find out where Jesus is, even if it's got a lot of dents, right? Even if it's really beat up, even if it's really hurt, even if it's really wounded, that we can find something beautiful and precious and we can actually see Jesus in the people who are most unlike him. And it's an incredible honor we have as people of God. Um, And then we get probably, next we can talk a bit about the, the diseased woman, the woman who's got a bleeding illness where well, she can't stop it. Uh, some people have compared it to hemorrhaging. But she's probably my favorite, my favorite character because she's really, she's really weird. Like, she is honestly a very strange human. She's not culturally correct, right? She is doing something very interesting. She's actually interrupting someone else's healing to get Jesus, to get her own. She is so unashamed and she's so desperate because she's actually, it says in the, in, the, in the scripture, she's tried everything else. So she says she has suffered much under many physicians, meaning the treatment wasn't easy, and spent all that she had. So she's now poor and was no better, but rather grew worse. And I don't know if you've kind of ever seen someone like that where they've tried everything. And they've just grown worse. Like they tried every single cure, every single doctor, every single physician, and the only thing that's happened is actually negative. They've ended up with a negative outcome, or they've ended up somewhere that is really unhealthy or not good. And for many of us, we who like we all have heard the term self medicating, where we try to do things to, to get ourselves better or to rely on things to, to make us well. Um, And I think for my life, I can see this so much because I have this tendency to turn to things that distract me, to turn to achievements that make me feel like I'm something, that I have identity, that I have value. For you, maybe that's school or ministry or, or preaching even. Or maybe it's something like YouTube or Netflix that you're distracting yourself from your life. And ultimately, I think we all have things that we turn to that, like this woman are really good temporary fixes but don't have lasting value. Like, you feel good for a moment, but then it goes away, right? Like, how good will an A on a paper feel in about, like, two, three years, right? Like, you, you won't really care. You won't be like, man, I got an A on that paper. I can keep going, right? Like, it's not something that's going to sustain us in the long term. What we need is something that is lasting and fulfilling and satisfying, And ultimately, she, in her desperation, finds it in Jesus. And for you and for me, we get the beautiful opportunity of seeing someone whose story is so broken, so full of hurt, so full of pain, and we can actually learn from her. Where we don't have to try everything else, we can actually trust that Jesus is enough. And it's a beautiful beautiful reality because she finds so much life in Jesus, and even— probably my favorite part about her story is that Jesus stops and looks for her, right? Like, for me, I kind of compared it to if all of a sudden, like, I heard something in the back and was like, okay, wait, guys, I'll come back in like 10 minutes, then I'll finish my sermon, right? That would be, like, just such, like, a, such a halt, you'd be like, what's happening? Like, who is this that he's stopping this and just making us sit here and wait? But that's the image we get, because Jairus just before this, was on his knees. And he is not someone you would normally wait for, right? He's a ruler of the synagogue. He is someone who sacrificed so much. All of his friends are probably in the Pharisaical group where they aren't exactly fans of Jesus. But what happens is this man, he gets on his knees and he begs Jesus to heal his daughter. And Jesus actually says yes and starts going with him. He's already on his way to heal someone else. And then this woman steps in and she touches his coat. So she's already healed. So the the disciples are are so just done with this they're like cuz Jesus turns around and says who touched my garments and the disciples said why do you say, like wh- why do you say who touched me like everyone's crowding around you it doesn't matter like this is the last thing that matters Jesus who cares but Jesus cares and he leans in and he actually pursues this daughter because he knows that she needs something more than his power Because she chased after Jesus and she got the healing that she was looking for. But not necessarily the touch she needed. Because she needed to encounter Jesus on a level where she understands that God isn't just about power, but he's about compassion. But he's about love, but he's about giving satisfying life that is so fulfilling and so lasting. Because that's what we see in him. Jesus stops and when he finds her, when she's ultimately on her knees before him, he says... Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She's already healed. But what Jesus is offering is this inner healing, this inner peace. That's the idea of the shalom, the peace of God that's lasting, that's full, that's satisfying. And ultimately, that's the life he's offering her. He's not offering her just a life of like, wow, your illness is gone. You'll have like another great 40 years on this planet. But what he wants to give her is something so much more satisfying, and that's actually an intimate relationship with him, where she understands that God is not just about power, because everyone believes that, right? Everyone believes that in an instant, God could just do something. Everyone in that time did. But what they needed to know, what they desperately needed to hear, was that God cared about them, that God was actually interested in their life and interested in their story, And that if they came to him, they would receive life, not just physically, but spiritually. And yeah, it's such a beautiful image, and I I love it. Um, Then we get to the story of a dead girl. Uh, She's 12 years old, she passes away. And what I love about the story is, is Jairus. He's kind of, doesn't seem really significant. He's a synagogue ruler, gets on his knees, it's cool. He's disobeying the Pharisees. It's awesome. But what I really love about it is that it puts, it puts him kind of in this state of tragedy where he's, he's just so juxtaposed with these people who don't have any faith. Jairus has sacrificed so much, and then there's people around him who say, um, their kid, Oh, this is, well, this is what he says. Someone comes from his house as a servant, and he says to him, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble the teacher any further? All the people around Jesus believed that he could heal physical illness when someone was still alive, but they didn't really believe that he could give life. And the incredible thing is that Jesus actually responds to this. He responds to the other people who are doubting. He says, don't fear, just believe. Just have faith. Right, he's like, trust me, trust me that I can actually do this, that I'm capable of giving life in a situation that's a tragedy. Right? There's so many situations I believe in our lives that are tragedies that are really hard to believe that Jesus is going to come through with. Ultimately, my one of the biggest difficulties and struggles, and, and a, really a turning point in my kind of uh, preteen years was uh, my best friend. His, his mother passed away of cancer. And it was a really brutal story because she was, she was a great mom. She had a young family. It was, her oldest was like 13, my best friend. And, and ultimately, she ate healthy. She loved Jesus. But the real—like, she died, and it was brutal, and we all thought she would get healing. So it's a lot like Jairus' situation, where someone else gets healing right, bef- right as he hears that his daughter's dead. Right, like there's so much good things, and then there's this brutal thing. And in my best friend's mom's life, her name was Trish. Uh, no one expected her life to end, and when it did, it caused really just her family to kind of disintegrate to the point where um, my best friend, his sisters, uh, even her her husband, are no longer following Jesus. And ultimately, the tragedy, because is a believer, so she has it really good. But the tragedy is that in their lives, they have started looking elsewhere other than Jesus to find life, to find healing, to find comfort. And it's brutal for me because I, I'm good friends with that family. We were in Bible study together. They weren't just nominal Christians who gave up. They were people who, whose life was in a crisis and... and It broke. And I I believe that we can still have faith for the people like that in our lives, that we can still trust that Jesus is actually going to bring about healing, that he's going to bring about life because that's his call. And what we can do is, and it takes a lot of trust, right? Because those are the people we care about and we can't imagine anyone caring more than we do. But we actually see that in Jesus' story, he's the one who cares most, that he's the one who cares so much more than we recognize. And, and the beautiful thing um, that Jesus does, and I love this because it's such an intimate moment, um, he invites the few faithful to come into the room with uh, Jairus's daughter. He invites the few faithful because everyone else is, is laughing at him. She, Jesus says, he's, she's just sleeping. Like, why, do you guys, why are you guys mourning? She's just sleeping. And everyone laughs. They think he's a joke. They think he can't actually do anything. He's like, sure, you healed some people, but this is too big for you. It's too much for you. But what Jesus does is he steps and he's like, okay. He brought his three disciples and the little girl's mother and father. And Jesus really doesn't do this for power, but what he says, and I'll read this last section again because I think it's really beautiful. Taking her by the hand, the little girl, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. See, Jesus is amazing, people, again. It's just so good. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And I love that story because it's a beautiful ending to this chapter where it's who is Jesus? Who is this man? And he's not someone who just does things for power and for recogni- recognition. He actually, he actively tells them not to tell anyone. But what he's doing is it, it for is because he wants intimacy and he wants life to be given to these people. And my prayer for you, my, I guess, big message, my big idea is that we would be people who see ourselves, our hearts, our lives, as a garden that we can have God grow, that we can let Him be the one who fosters health, fosters life, and that we can go at His pace. Because when we see Jesus moving, when we see Him doing things, He does it in a very unhurried way. He is the opposite of on a, on a strict schedule that leaves people behind. He's, he's picking up the pieces of people's lives and He's actually caring for them, He's putting it back together right before their eyes. He slows down. He, he actively just stops, chase it, like going to give this amazing like resurrection story, and he stops so he can heal a woman who's bleeding and who's already got healed, but she show, he shows her compassion. He values compassion enough to stop, like, to, to pause in the middle of healing someone else and even resurrecting someone else to just show someone that they're loved. That's how much he cares. That's how unhurried he is. And my dream for us is that we would be people who, A, marvel at Jesus, that when we go, and when we pray, that we would be people who actively seek out ways and opportunities where we can marvel at him, where we can pause and say, okay, Jesus, you're beautiful. Like, I'm going to stop living a hurried life where I rush past you, where I, where I really don't do prayer because I want to love you, because I want intimacy with you, but because I want to check off that devotions box, because I want to be a good leader, because I want to be a good person, but know that we would do it because we actually care, because we actually have an unhurried way of life that cares more about the person of Jesus than getting his power or checking off our boxes. And I I would also just love if all of the students at this college were people who loved Jesus so much that it would be, like, a little bit weird to people, that it would cause people to notice, you know? Like, imagine if you just enjoyed Jesus so much that other people are like, what's going on, right? Like, imagine if that was the type of love you had for Jesus, where you express it more than you express your love for vanilla Coke, right? Where you express it more than you express your love for, like, this is Us, or Stranger Things, or whatever it is, right? Where you express it so much, you're like, man, have you heard? Like, have you heard about Jesus? Yeah. Like, man, he's so good, right? Like, imagine if we talked like that, acted like that, where we had this incredible vision for life that was like, man, Jesus is so good, and that it couldn't help bubble out of us. So I think my time's basically up. I might have went a little over, but let me pray for you, and yeah, and then we'll close, I guess. Jesus, thank you that we can love you, that we can be unhurried in your presence, that as people who get to live like like Adam and Eve ultimately did in the garden where we can just rely on you, where we can have that trust with you, like, no, what he has for me is good. What he has for me is not actually bad, but it's actually the best thing for me, that you will grow us, that we can trust that in the long run, You are a God who's faithful, who loves us, who when he does a work in our heart, people will marvel at you, not us, because that's what we really need. And that we can just enjoy you so much, that we can love being in your presence in just so many ways, that we would be willing to be a little bit unhurried, even if it means people are more important than our schedule. Um, Thank you, Jesus, so much for who you are. You're so beautiful. Um, And I pray that you give each and every person in this room uh, a really special experience with you today. Amen.